Sorry, I have a little bit of something in my throat. So if I have to cough, uh, I'll try to go like that so you don't hear it. Uh, I have a three and a half year old and a one and a half year old. So our house is always sort of sick. You know, it's not sick, but it's just like on the precipice constantly. If you've been a parent, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, it's kind of there. Uh, <clears throat> or if you grew up in a home with anyone, uh, then you kind of understand that. Then you understand that as well. Um, yeah, so I am really excited to be here with you guys today. Uh, if I haven't gotten the pleasure of meeting you, which I know the majority of you uh, that that's true of, um, my name is Aaron Boswell. I'm the ministry director in charge of internships uh, at Westside Church in Vancouver. So um, basically my job is to find people that uh, are from our church that they feel like God has called them into uh, pastoral ministry or to be a ministry director uh, or, or lead a ministry of some sort uh, and try to help uh, equip them for what God has called them to do. So it's kind of uh, equipping them, training them, and then mobilizing them or gently pushing them out the door uh, to do what, uh, what God's called them to do. And so um, that's what I have the pleasure of being able to do. And uh, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I know um, you're, this church is, is deeply loved by our elders. And so uh, when Glenn emailed over and said, hey, uh, can anybody help uh, preach it all? Uh, Norm was like, Boswell, that's you, man. I was like, all right, uh, I'll there. I'm there, man. Love those people. And so uh, while I can say that I have loved you from far, now I will know you. Uh, so that when we pray for you as a staff, I'll say, man, I know some of those people. They're amazing. So um, glad to be here with you. If you're brand new as well, welcome. You're not the only one. So glad you're here or else I'd be the only one. So um, really excited to uh, be filling in to dive in. So we're going to do that. So for this morning, um, how we're going to start our time is by, by focusing on sort of one question that's going to uh, focus all of our time together as, uh, as we're opening up God's Word. And, and that question that I want to focus on um, is one that, that we have asked ourselves. Maybe it's one that we're currently asking ourselves, or, or maybe it's, it's one that we've been asked by others. And it's this, how do we know that we are loved by God? How do we know that we're loved by God? How do we know that God loves us? And, and, and we may naturally begin to think of a million answers to that question of how do we know that God loves us? And, and so I'd like, I'd like to consider three of those. So some of us, when considering those questions, we may naturally think about our performance. Maybe this past week in their last season of our lives, our morality, our righteousness. Uh, we may believe that God is happy with us because of what we do. And a good way that we have to kind of test that is to think of 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 how we're doing uh, with uh, when we walked in here, for example, this morning as we're on our way uh, into this gathering, as we're meeting to gather and to worship Jesus, to praise Jesus, to learn about Jesus. Um, some of us, if we're honest, we walked in confidently because we feel like we've had a pretty good week. Like we feel like if there's these boxes that God's wanting for us to check every week, we, we've done a pretty good job. I kind of ticked all those off. And so we walk into something like this today feeling that God, God loves me. I, I've, I've done great this week. And, and yet others of us, we, we know we haven't checked those boxes this week. And so when we walk in, we, we may feel guilty about it. We sing songs of God's love for us, but you don't, you don't feel that. Right? We may be even a little unsure if God loves us because we know that we don't deserve to gather together. We, and maybe we even feel ashamed of being here concerning this past week or maybe the season of life that we're in. 
So is our moral or religious performance, is that a good place to land if we're wanting to know, does God love us? Or uh, others may profess that they know they're loved by God through their finances or their success they've been experiencing recently. Some say, well, yeah, God loves me and I know it because I'm, I'm doing really well. God blesses his kids and those who are faithful and I'm financially successful. So I know that God loves me. I'm loved by God. And, and most of you would probably not say that out loud, right? Some, some of you might, no, that's fine, that's, that's great. Some of you might, most of us probably would not, but, but maybe you've thought it in your heart or maybe considering the opposite of that, if it's okay if I ask, if you're honest, do you sometimes believe I struggle to believe that God loves you because if he did, you'd have more success or or more money in the bank. So so you may feel God isn't happy with you. God doesn't love you. He's a withholding father. So the question for you is, does God's love for you rise and fall with some of the numbers in your bank account? Is that a sure place to know that you are loved by God? Another popular one that people look to is, is that we may innately look to our health, Right? So, so if, if everything is going well for you, you're healthy and you're strong, and so is everyone else in your family, you, you may see that as the blessing of God. And so you and God, you are doing great. God loves you because you are, you're whole and you're happy and there's nothing physically wrong with you at the moment. You, you're cancer or tumor-free and everything is swell. Or consider how we struggle feeling loved by God when your body or the body of someone that you love is riddled with cancer. When dementia is onsetting, when your body is still not healed, when you're in constant pain. And so if you're honest, in those moments, do you struggle to believe that God loves you because of your health? So is our health a good barometer of God's affection towards us? And there's a million more situations and places where our hearts can, can run to, and they naturally do. They, they run to all of these things when trying to answer the question, how do I know? How can I have security today that God loves me? And that's the heart of what we're going to be studying today in God's Word. And I'm going to spoil it for you. Like, right from the get-go, like, spoiler alert. Like, everything that I'm going to say is in the next, like, minute. And then I'm just going to say it over and over and over again, and then we're going to worship Jesus. Uh, so, here we go. The Christian responds to the question, how do I know that God loves me supremely by looking at Jesus? He is our ground of hope. He is our security. He was sent into the world so that we may know and experience God's love for us. And we see it chiefly and supremely in the death of Jesus. See, our our greatest reminder of God's love for us is found in that while we were yet his enemies, Jesus, God, died for us. So if we walk away with, with anything this morning during our time together, it would be this. How do I know that I'm loved by God? I know that I'm loved by God because God, the Son, Jesus, put on flesh the way that you put on clothes, stepped out into the world today, you look good, by the way. And the, way. and the way that he put on flesh and stepped into time to reveal God's love for you by standing condemned in your place. And, and when we know the love of God like that, when we trust that God's love for us, when we trust that God's love for us doesn't ebb and flow like the tide, 
will walk through all of life. Cancer or health, riches or poverty, and, and we will be confident that nothing, no nothing, can separate us from the love of God that is given to us through Christ Jesus. So, so we're going to open up God's Word together. We're going to be in the book of First John. So if you're brand new to the Bible, First uh, John is in the very, very back. The very last book of the Bible is Revelation. So you can just turn to the very last book and then just go left. Uh, le- left. That's your left. Go that way. Uh, <clears throat> about two or three books, and you'll see it. It's very small, First John. Maybe there's only two or three pages in, in your Bible. Um, or you can open up on, on a mobile app or whatever. Um, but we're going to be looking at chapter 4, so large number 4. So 1 John, chapter 4, large number 4, and verses or small numbers 7 to 12. Uh, and it'll also be, oh, look, there it is, uh, right behind me. So let's read together God's word from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son, his only Son, into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That's the word of God. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive into that text. All right? Good. All right. So, Father, we, we pray uh, we pray that you would speak into our hearts this morning that, God, that we would have a, a solid confidence in your love for us as, as it's been revealed through Jesus. God, we pray that we would see and savor Jesus today. God, that we would, we would know how you have called us to live as a response to your great love. God, apart from your grace with us, we believe that none of this will happen but we, we ask that we would have eyes to see and hearts that can feel and minds that can comprehend your word. And we ask all of that confidently and expectantly as we pray your promises back to you. We love you, God. Help us to love you more. Amen. Amen. All right, so while the overarching question that we're going to be walking into and diving into today is how can I know that God loves me, another important question that we'll be tackling this morning as well is how does God expect me to love others? So how can I know God loves me, and how does God expect me to love others? Because the Bible ties these two things inextricably uh, together. Love for God fleshes itself out in how we love one another. And it's here where we pick up our text for today. So we're going to pick up at verses uh, 7 and 8. Uh, and firstly, we're going to see how we are to love one another. So look back at verse 7 with me. Uh, so it, it's interesting to see the first few words here are beloved let us love one another. So, so John starts by affirming, firstly, his love for them. He calls them beloved and then tells them to love one another. So sort of like how a good parent, my, my three-and-a-half-year-old and one-and-a-half-year-old, they fight all the time, uh, right? So as I walk into fighting, yelling, don't bite one another, love one another, right? Don't hit your brother like that, love one another. So we walk into this and we see we see this pastor named John writing this letter. It says, Beloved, 
Those who, who are beloved by God love one another like a good dad would love one another. But he, he, he doesn't just give us a command and then just leave it, right? Some of you growing up, your dad was like, because I said so, just go, right? That's the only reason you get. John doesn't leave us with that. He gives us reasons for why we as, as Christians ought to love one another. And if you're sitting there like, I'm not a Christian, what does that have to do with me? It's, it's because we're, we're kind of peeking behind the veil, letting you see what does it mean to, to love God and how does that shift how we love other people? So it's sort of like a family meeting. You ever been in one of those awkwardly at your friend's house? And you're like, why am I here? Uh, welcome. Just embrace the awkward. Uh, it'll, it'll be beautiful. So, so this command to love one another, it's not just left, but he, he gives us sort of the why in the rest of verse 7. So look with me and we can begin to understand how this argument takes shape of why Christians specifically are to love one another. So we'll look at beloved. Let us love one another. What is that next word? For. And, and that little word for lets us know the reason for the previous command. It's used to point something out to let us know the reason for the command. So if I said, for example, everybody run, there's a fire. Or for there's a fire, right? You have action, everybody run. Why? For there's a fire. That's what John is doing. Love one another for, and then he's going to give you a couple of reasons of why you ought to love one another. And, and he grounds this in three specific things. That's good for a preacher to have three things. That's good. Here we go. So first is love is from God. We see that in verse seven. So love one another for love is from God. So it's a reassurance that this love that they are to have for one another is not from their own doing. It, it doesn't come from within themselves. No, who's it from? It's from God himself. It is a gift of God. It comes from him so that the love that Christians are to have for one another will be placed within them by God himself. He is the author of it. And all true Christians will love one another because it will be placed in them by God himself. It won't have to be manufactured. It won't have to be faked for, by the true Christian. No, this love for God's people will abound within them naturally. It, it's a strange truth. I, I have a friend recently who, um, who he, he, was, he was talking about the first time that he ever met Christians, and he was really weirded out by them, like really weirded out. Like they're, they're some weird people. He, he explained how, how they're just strange. They tell one another that they love one another, and they hug one another, and they're the friendly, like they call and check up on one, like in, in sort of weird ways. So not like super weird way. Well, he, he, kind of, he kind of alluded to the fact of, you know, like if you ever watched a scary movie, how the first five or 10 minutes of the movie, everything seems too perfect to be true. And then boom, something crazy happens. Like that kind of creepy, like things are too well. And he used to feel this is the way that he felt about, about Christians. They're just a little bit too nice. And yet as he considered Jesus and he started being around our church, there was a day when he began to love Jesus. And then he felt this love for these people. And he loved starting to gather with them. And he loved being encouraged by them. And then the strangest thing happened. My friend, guess what he started doing? Hugging people. He's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. He's just, I have this love for them. And, and then he started telling people that he loved them. My friend is not someone who naturally tells people that he loves them very often. Right? And where did this love for Jesus and this love for people come from? Well, first and foremostly, it comes from God. This is the, the argument that he says. We're to love one another for love is from God. Secondly, we see that Christians are commanded to love one another because loving one another evidences the fact that they have been born of God. 
Not, not meaning God is their physical dad, but it reminds us of John chapter 3, which if, if you haven't uh, read, uh, go home and do that today. It's beautifully written, uh, but it explains how anyone who is a Christian did not come to believe upon Jesus as their only hope before God the Father on their own. That their birth into the family of God, their spiritual birth, was a gracious gift given to them by God. And, and all of a sudden, they, they found themselves in the family of God. And, and this isn't a, a great perfect illustration, but a slight little one. Uh, we, and we see that even in our own families. For example, my sons, neither of them decided, I want that guy to be my dad. They just got me, right? Neither of them decided, I want that guy to be my brother, right? My, my three-year-old didn't walk in. So I want that baby, that one, right? Knew nothing about him. All of a sudden, we just brought him home and said, this is your brother. You must now love him. Right? And, and so this is what we kind of get from the idea, that, that if we're born from God, if we're now found ourselves birthed into this brand new family, God, our Father, expects for us to love one another. So he calls us into that. And, and the Christian find themselves born into the family with new passions, loves, and desires, and also our new brothers and sisters that we should love. So our love for one another verifies the fact that we have been born into this brand new family of God. And then thirdly, whoever loves like this, whoever has this God-given love uh, placed with inside of them for God and for other people and has been born into the family of God through faith in Jesus is one who can confidently say that they know God. There's someone who can say that they know God. Which is shocking. And Jesus says this, that if we have seen him, that we have seen the Father. That he is in the Father, the Father is in him. So that if we want to know God the Father, we must know Jesus. And if we don't know Jesus, we cannot claim that we know God. And if we don't love Jesus and love others, modeling God's love for them, what we see in verse 8 is that we, we see that we cannot say that we know God. And some may be asking, what about, what about those people who don't believe in Jesus as God? Don't they have a relationship with God too? Maybe, maybe in just a different way from you, but what do you do with that? And yet what, what we see is that God graciously says, no. If you want to know God, you must believe upon Jesus as your God and King and Savior, which I understand is shocking and repugnant to the vast majority of the world, including most of my friends and family. And I pray for them often, and we, we talk through these things. So I understand. I understand the position of that. Are you saying, if I don't know Jesus, I can't say I know God? I'm not. But that's what God is saying. And it's shocking for us. I truly believe that. Though. The Bible teaches that there's no hope apart from faith in Jesus. There is not even a knowledge of God. There's no love of God. There's no hope of God. So if you want to know the only true and living God, we look to Jesus. So verse 7 and 8, the Christian is called to examine themselves to see if they are in Jesus by how they love God and they love others as a gracious kind of litmus test of the genuineness of our faith. So do you know God? If so, let us love one another as a response. And if not, know that God is extending to you right now his love for you, specifically and intentionally. It's why you're here this morning from the text, because God wants you to know that he does love you. He wants to be known by you. He's passionate about that. He's not a God who's just comfortable with you not knowing who he is. 
He's the God who enters into your world and says, come and know me. I want to be known by you. This is the God of the Bible. And that's what we're turning to next. Point number two, that we're called to love one another because that's how we have been loved by God. And that brings us to the central question for today. How can we know that we're loved by God? Can we have a confidence and trust that goes beyond temporary feelings that so often lead us poorly anyways? I mean, if you think about it, we're flawed people, aren't we? I mean, we get so tired that we can't think. We get so hungry that we get hangry. Maybe that's just me. Uh, No, I didn't think so. Uh, We get so blinded by emotions, we can't see things properly. And John goes on to explain the reason we are to love one another is because we have come to understand God's great love extended to us through Jesus. He says it in two refrains. He starts in verse 9 and then in verse 10. And he seeks in, in verse 9 to reveal that God's love was made manifest to us through the birth and life of Jesus. And verse 10 tells us that God's love was most supremely revealed and climaxes through Jesus' death on the cross, where God's love and justice are just mingled together beautifully. And so we're going to look at those one after the other, all right? So we're going to start in verse 9 together. So God's love is shown specifically in sending Jesus. Let's look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was made visible, that we could see it among us. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that his purpose, that we might live through him. So God's love was made manifest, it's put on display among us through his sending his son, Jesus, into our world. And remember, Jesus said as much as he was among us. He declared, if you've seen him, that you've seen the Father. He, he's also said that he and the Father are one, and that he has nothing of his own authority, but only does what he sees the Father doing. His aim was to manifest, to make known, to clearly reveal God the Father to us. John 1.17 explains for us that Jesus, being God, came to make him known. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, But in these last days he's spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that changes everything. We can know God by knowing Jesus. He reveals the Father perfectly. So, so yesterday, my three-year-old, as most three-year-olds do, he needed a little fatherly discipline, right? Uh, he looked at my wife, and his tone and his words were not, not good, not acceptable in the Boswell household, so it's like, go to your room, boy, and then go in there. And, and what we do during this whole exchange is <clears throat> we have him explain what he did wrong. And then we ask, he asks for forgiveness for everybody that he's sinned against in his escapade. So when he sins against my wife, uh, I have him uh, ask for, uh, tell, tell what he did and ask for forgiveness. Uh, first and foremost to God, then to me, because he talked that way to my wife. I'm like, boy, you don't talk that way to my wife, man. Nobody talks to my wife like that. Uh, and then he goes and, and he asks forgiveness and repents to uh, my wife. And so as we're going through this, uh, he's going to repent uh, uh, to God. So he looks up to the heavens. 
I don't know why he does that. I never taught him to do that. He just looks straight up. Uh, and he says, I'm sorry, God, for yelling at mommy like that. Do you forgive me, God? And I always leave a pause just like that. Just that he feels the weight of waiting. Do you forgive me, God? And then I look at him and I say, hey, buddy, God forgives you. Why? Well, I, I'm teaching him that God, when we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want him to know that. And while my son is not yet a Christian, I want him to know, first and foremost, he hasn't just sinned against my wife. He hasn't sinned against me. He's sinned, he sinned against God himself. And, and, and this time that we have together is just such a, a beautiful time where I'm teaching him, hey, buddy, your sin that you have, it's not just you yelling at mommy. It's not just you biting your brother. It's not just you hitting him. It's not just you like pulling that little girl's hair. This, this is a weighty thing between you and God. And he's learning what does it mean to follow Jesus. And he, and he looked at me right after I said that he was forgiving. Oh, and he's so sweet. He looked at me and he said, but daddy, I can't see God. Daddy, I can't see him. You know, he keeps looking up there every time. He does something wrong. I can't see him. And, and I love that. I, that, that thought, I, I, I can't see him. And every time he says that, all he can think about is a similar statement from the Apostle Peter towards Jesus. Show us the Father and it will be enough. And so I respond to my little buddy. I say, buddy, if you want to see God, you can look at Jesus. We can know about God as we look at Jesus through the Bible. Remember, we read about him every night. We know what God is like as we look at Jesus. And he says, yeah, Daddy, I can know God because I see Jesus. So the first reasons here that we have of, of John giving us, giving us this, this question of how can we know that we're loved by God is that God sent Jesus, God the Son, to manifest, to reveal God's love for us. So let me encourage you. If we want, if we want to know if God loves us, that's our question. Does God love us? We need not look at the situations around us. We need not look at our bank accounts or our healthiness or lack thereof. No, we begin by looking at the fact that God sent Jesus into the world so that we might know him, that we might know God, and so that we might live through him. And then John gives us another reason why we can be confident of God's love towards us, the death of Jesus. See, it's the climax of Jesus' entire mission upon the earth to make the love of God known for us so that I can look my son in the eyes and say with complete confidence, yes, you are forgiven of this. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. The climax of his whole mission is to make the love of God known. He begins in verse 10 in the exact same way he began verse 9 to show for us a connection. There's a logical progression here, and he says, and this is love. Not that we have loved God. That, that, that is a shaky ground of hope. So, so don't think of a good picture of, of love as how you have loved God, <clears throat> how you've <clears throat> been awesome because we aren't. No, instead, and this is love, that he loved us and sent his son. For what purpose? To be the propitiation for our sins. So see, it's not that, it's not that you and I, it's not that we have loved God, but rather, rather get this, rather that, it's that God has loved us from before the foundations of the world from before you and I had done anything right or wrong, before we could have ever earned or deserved any of his love. It's not, that we have, it's not that we have loved God, but rather God has loved us. But his love for us isn't just talk only. It's the God of the Bible. It isn't just talk. He's not just talk. He's, 
He's action. He puts his love into motion. It is a love that is self-sacrificial, which really is what all love must be, isn't it? Self-sacrificial. I was reading uh, A.W. Tozer. Uh, He wrote this book called Knowledge of the Holy. And in it, this is what he says. Love considers nothing its own, but gives all freely to the object of its affection. We see this constantly in our world of men and women. A young mother, thin and tired, nurses a plump and healthy baby. And far from complaining, the mother gazes down at her child with eyes shining with happiness and pride. Acts of self-sacrifice are common to love. And we see that first and foremostly in that God himself, the God whom we have offended, the God whom we have sinned against, he has self-sacrificed himself for us. And so in verse 10, let us see that God's love is supremely displayed through the cross of Jesus. For here it's where you and I, our biggest need has been met by God himself. Jesus took upon himself the penalty for our rebellion against him. And that is the supreme reason for his coming, that his blood would be spilt to atone for our rebellion against him. See, the Bible explains that you and I from birth and by nature are those who are who are not born spiritually neutral. We have sort of that idea, right? A baby comes out, oh, spiritually neutral. Right? They grow up spiritually sort of neutral. But that, that, friends, is, is an idea we don't get from God's word. Instead, what do we see? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, this is how God explains that you and I, from birth, this is what it says about us, that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, it's not flattering. You're not going to see that on a coffee cup anywhere, right? Mm, just drinking my morning coffee or my morning tea. It's not a flattering picture that we have of us when we see when we see what God, God says of us from before he found us and saved us and birthed us into his family. And all of this means that none of us are born spiritually neutral towards God. Instead, what we see is that you and I, all of us, are born naturally as rebels who rebel against God. See, it's not, it's, we hear sometimes, well, they just got caught up in the wrong crowd. And I understand what, what you're saying, because bad company ruins good morals. There's something deeper at play here in the Bible. See, the problem isn't that, oh, I just, I just got caught up in the wrong crowd. No, the Bible actually points the finger back at you and says, actually, you are the wrong crowd. You are the wrong crowd. You, you went to find people who just celebrate whatever you were doing. That is the, that, that's what we see. This brokenness goes deeply into us. It's deeply into us. So we're born as rebels who rebel, broken people, what the Bible opens for us is that you and I, from birth, we deserve nothing from God except to face a tsunami of his righteous judgment against us and to spend eternity facing the judgment of God for our treason against him. As Thomas Watson writes, the torments of hell abide forever. If all the earth and the sea were sand, and every thousandth year a bird should come and take away one grain of sand, it would be a long time ere that a vast heap of sand were emptied. Yet if after all of that time the damned may come out of hell, there were some hope. 
but this word ever breaks the heart. And that is right. See, it is it's a bleak picture that we see. We, you and I, we deserve nothing more from God except to face a tsunami of his judgment because you and I have rebelled against the king of the universe. The Bible says this tsunami of his judgment is rushing towards us. It's about to overtake us. We have no hope. We cannot outrun it. We cannot placate it. We can only be swept away in it. And this is where Jesus enters the scene. Coming to our rescue. This is where he comes and he stands condemned in our place. This is why we sing amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me. This is why we sing of God's great love. This is why as Christians we talk about God's great love. Just know, when we think about how does God love us, we don't have to think about what we have done. We think about what He has done for us, how He has loved us. He, our God, whom we have offended, has come. He has come to stand condemned in our place, to face His own judgment against us, so that we may not die, but rather have life. Our God died so that we would have life. See, no wonder John points out to the fact that it's silly to think that, that in this exchange with God, that it's, we look to our love for God and say, oh, I love God a lot. But do you love God the way he has loved you? No. The way we have loved God, that's not, that's not love. The way he has loved us, that, that is love. He's loved us supremely. And, and we see that Jesus here is the, be, is the propitiation for our sins. And your translation of that word it may be a bit different, but no matter what the word choice is, what John is unavoidably getting at is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. D.A. Carson explains it like this. He says, In the cross, Christ, Jesus, voluntarily took my place, bearing my guilt and punishment that my sins deserved, dying my death, so that the sin is canceled. And the offense of sin has been removed so that God no longer stands over against me in wrath, but in favor. See, Christ's death cancels the sin of his blood-bought people. That's what Christians call expiation. And it turns aside God's righteous wrath. That's what Christians call propitiation. So do you see God's amazing love given for you? God came himself. Just in, in, the, way that, in the way that love must almost go itself. Like our married gentleman in the room, when you met that special lady... Did you send one of your friends to go propose and tell her how much you love her and ask her to marry you? You better not have. No. Why? In matters of the heart, you must always go yourself. And in matters of the heart, God has come himself. Not just to proclaim it, but to intentionally and specifically stand condemned in our place. To take his judgment on us and to cleanse us for the sins that we've committed and to remove the shame of the sins that have been committed against us. See, apart from his kindness towards us in the cross of Jesus, the weight of our rebellion would still remain, our shame and our brokenness and our rebellion. But through faith in Jesus' death, your penalty is paid in full. He is your substitute, truly revealing the love of God for you so that you don't have to wonder if God loves you. Oh, do you see that? You don't have to wonder if God loves you. You can be sure of it. And maybe some of you have never understood the love of God for you in this way, that he would sacrifice himself for you. 
And today you understand for the first time, this is the kind of God that you always wished existed. And you want to be forgiven of your sins and believe upon Jesus today. And the great news is that the offer is available for you today. God wants to forgive you. This is God's gracious disposition towards you. He's not an angry dad looking to exact judgment upon you. He's a loving father who pays the whole way for you and says, believe in what I have done for you. Come to me, you who are weary. So do you believe those hard truths that you're broken, that you sinned against God, and that you have no hope from, apart from Jesus? Do you believe the tsunami of his judgment is coming to you and that you need a savior? If so, you can come and believe upon Jesus today as your only hope of salvation. Believe that he manifested the love of God and he died to pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. And believe that he rose from the dead, conquering over death, and commit your life to him. It could look like a simple prayer in your heart right now even, admitting that you've sinned against God, believing that Jesus paid your debt and forgave you and welcomed you into his family, and committing your life to follow after him. And for those who are Christians, we see in the next two verses a sort of litmus test for our lives as we saw in verses seven and eight. So let's walk through them and ask if these are things that categorize your life. And if not, let's be honest with that, but with with God and with ourselves. So what should our response be to the love of God? How should we live? So if this is true, if Jesus really has come to make God's love known to us through his life and through his death, how should we live as a response? And verse 11 begins the same way that verse seven begins. Look at it. It says, beloved, I love that. It just connects it right back into verse 7. These are the people that John loves dearly and that are loved dearly by God. And he says, if God has loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has so loved us that he manifested his love among us and sacrificed himself so that we could know the love of him, then love should be liberally given by us for one another especially for those who profess to be part of the family of God. We have this brothership, this this kinship that you and I now are brothers and sisters in and through Jesus. The same way that I tell my, my boys, hey, love one another because you're brothers. He's saying here, love one another because we are now brothers and sisters in God's family. And the word ought here is key. We ought to love one another. Ought lets us know the natural response of our hearts when we receive the love from God, a love that doesn't demand that we measure up, a love that comes to us and says, you can never measure up, but I'm going to love you anyway. Right? When we receive that kind of love, how do you think that changes how we love other people? Do you think that makes us more demanding of them or a whole lot less demanding of them? A whole lot less. Because have we been loved by God? And that shapes all that we, we are. And it shapes specifically how we relate even as, as a church. Intentionally love one another. And I'm reminded of this actually in how often I fail at this. How often I fail to love other people as I ought. Like, so for example, I ask myself this question probably about once, once a month, once every two months. How am I doing at loving people that are part of my community group? Am I actually treating them as my brothers and my sisters? Or I think about how would I treat my sister if I knew she was having a bad day at work. Probably text her, bring her her favorite little treat and say, hey, I love you. I'm sorry today kind of sucks. I, just, I love you. Hope things are going well, right? They're having a great day. What am I doing? I'm celebrating with them. 
When there are births, we celebrate. When there's deaths, we mourn. How are we doing it loving those that God has called us to be in partnership with? Do we love them as if they are our brothers and sisters? Because they are. See, it's not optional. It's an ought. And it reveals how we've been loved by God and how we actually feel about our relationship with God. And then verse 12 heightens the conversation even further. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So if we love one another in a self-sacrificial way, the way that God has loved us and demands of us as his kids, then God abides in us as a covenant community. These are Jesus' words in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. And, And that's exactly what John means here for us in verse 12. And his love is perfected in us. Not meaning that God's love is lacking perfection and needs to somehow be made perfect, right? God's love isn't lacking anything, but rather meaning that God's love for us is fleshed out in the world as we are God's people. Like, have you ever been to get your eyes tested and they show you like A or B and they click A or B and they click A or B and you get lost because there's a point where you can't tell anymore and you're like, wait, flip that again? I don't know right? As you're flipping through that, that is the exact picture that we have here. As we practically and tangibly, as God's people, live out these new relationships as the people of God on the mission of God, God's love is sharpened in the eyes of the people that we're around. They see how we love one another, click. They see how other people love one another, click. Which one do you, do you see better? Oh, uh, that one. Great. And this is, what this, this is what this means. Through our lives as the people of God, on the mission of God, for the glory of God, people see more clearly the love of God. So, so that what people could not see and experience beforehand, God's amazing love towards them is now seen in how we love one another. So just as I shared that story, uh, at the very beginning of my friend who thought Christians were like super bizarre, and they became a Christian, then he started just loving people. Right, so as I shared that story, think about him. He saw little by little who God is and how he loves through his people. He came to believe in this God because he saw how God's people loved one another and how they loved him as, as, they, as we fleshed it out into everyday life. And that's really how we all became Christians. If you think about it, if you're a Christian today, it's because God's people loved you and you saw something beautifully about who God is in them. And you said, I, I want that. If there's a God like that, I'm in, right? Likewise here, it'll be the same thing in our world around us. So how do I know that God loves me? And, and this is the heart of what we've seen today in these verses. We know that God loves us by looking at Jesus. He is our only ground of hope and security. He was sent in the world that we may know and see and experience God's love for us. And we see this chiefly in the death of Jesus. So that our greatest reminder of God's love for us is found in that while we were yet his enemies, Jesus died for us. So how do I know that I'm loved by God? Because God, the Son, Jesus, stepped into time to reveal God's love by standing condemned in our place, facing the punishment that you and I deserve to pay. And when, when we know that, when we know that self-sacrificial and costly love of God that's been given only through Jesus, when we trust that God's love doesn't ebb and flow like the tide, And that changes everything about how we live our lives. We can walk through all of life, cancer or health, riches or poverty, life and death, and a million other things, 
confident that nothing, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's been given to us through Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So as we close, I want to ask, if it's okay, if you're honest with yourself, do you have that kind of confidence that God loves you not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done? Or are you not yet sure? And would you like to be? So today you can come and believe upon Jesus. You don't even have to leave this morning without confidence that God wants you to have. He wants you to have confidence that he loves you. You need only look at the person and the work of Jesus and what he has done for you. So you come and believe upon him today. And for those of you who are Christians, we're going to enter into a time of response where we're going to be celebrating our communion with God by taking some bread, which is symbolic of Jesus' body, and dipping it, or not dipping, sorry, uh, and drinking uh, as well, the cup uh, of juice as well that reminds us of uh, the blood of Jesus that was poured out on our behalf so that we might be declared innocent before God. And this is what Christians throughout, throughout the last 2,000 years have done together. Why? Because we remember that our God, God the Son, Jesus, his body was broken, his blood needs to have been shed so that you and I might be his new people. He stood condemned in our place. And so, Christian, I'd love for you to come this morning to remember the body and the blood of Jesus and to celebrate your communion with God. Not because you have loved him and because you have earned his love, but because he has come and made it manifest through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Come to the table not because we have earned it, but because Jesus has. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak and we need his strength. Not because we are morally upright, but because we are failures and we depend on his grace daily.